Good morning. It's really good to see each of you here this morning. Obviously, I'm not Adam, though uh, it might help to know that if you thought I was, I'm an ophthalmologist who is happy to talk with you about your vision after the service. So Adam and his wife, Lori, are traveling to Chicago this weekend. My name is Esther, and our family has been coming to Highway for almost seven years now, and I am so excited to get to look into God's Word with you today. So today is a big day. It's Super Bowl Sunday, and the 49ers are playing. Yes, appropriate moment to cheer, appropriate moment. Though I have to confess that this is the only time of year that I watch football. I'm not proud of it, but I may have read an article this past week titled, How to Fake Your Way Through the Super Bowl, including phrases to throw out, like, the game is won in the trenches, won in the trenches. Football pretty much looks to me like a bunch of people repeatedly piling on top of each other until someone explains the play, and as I begin to see the strategy, I realize that football is actually all about a group of people working together on a mission to get the ball to the end zone. It's a mission they could not have done on their own, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today in the spiritual life, how to do mission together. So that's what you can be thinking about as you're all watching the game today, the Super Bowl as spiritual allegory. We've been in a series entitled Incarnational, where we've been looking at what it means to be missional. Because after all, if you want to summarize the whole story of the Bible into one big story, it's the story of a God who went on mission to love and rescue his people despite the obstacles. And we've been tracing that story through the Bible using this map. We started off in the Old Testament where we saw that God's first act of mission was to create humans in a perfect garden. But humans rebelled, so God sent Abraham on mission to restore humanity. But humans rebelled again and went into exile until God sent his son Jesus on mission to our world in human form, which is what we call the incarnation. We've been parked for the last few weeks in the Gospels of the New Testament, looking at how Jesus did mission, that it involves our literal neighbors. It requires not just going and doing, but sitting and listening. And thirdly, it sees those on the margins. Today, we're going to conclude our series by looking at the next step in the story, We're going to move from the Gospels to the book of Acts and see what happened after Jesus physically left. Now, the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. At the time that Luke wrote his two volumes, more than half a century had passed since Jesus was on earth, and the church was struggling. They were kind of disappointed that Jesus hadn't come back yet. You know, just like us, They were caught in this time after Jesus had bodily left, but not yet bodily returned. Like, what is the story about now? What is the point of the church? Luke actually answers this question through how he structures his two volumes in a similar way. 
In the Gospel of Luke, he describes how Jesus was sent to earth, then the Holy Spirit comes, then Jesus goes on mission in three geographical stages. First Galilee, then the road to Jerusalem, then Jerusalem. Acts is structured the same way. You have the followers of Jesus who are baptized by the Holy Spirit, then sent on mission, which Luke describes in three even broader geographical categories, to Judea, Sumeria, and the ends of the earth. See, Luke is saying Jesus may be bodily gone, but you are now his embodiment on earth. Just as Jesus was sent on mission, you, church, are now the embodiment and the continuation of that mission. You're not just sitting around. You have a purpose and a direction. You are on the move to continue the story of God's mission. That's the last piece of this missional map, the church. Throughout this series, we've been defining our mission as a church in this way. Being missional is to be sent by God, and since sending always involves leaving and going, what are we leaving? We're leaving the comforts of our lives to go where? Into every space and every person to embody Jesus, that's the incarnational part, in order to do what? To bless, love, bring justice and restoration and declare the reign of God. Today, we're going to look at one essential ingredient for this mission that we see in Acts. Luke actually first hints at what this is at the end of the Gospel of Luke in Jesus' last words to his followers. Think about this for a minute. If you were essentially starting a new faith group, what is the one thing you'd want your followers to have? Would it be a new name to distinguish themselves from other religions? maybe a creed or a rite of passage. Maybe it would be a location from which to operate. Maybe some funds, some seed money. Actually, that should have probably been the first thing I mentioned. (laughs) Money sounds good. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't leave them with any of those things. He tells them in his last words to do one thing, to stay together. He wants them to have community. And that's why the very first thing Luke writes about in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit comes, the first result of this powerful supernatural experience at Pentecost, it isn't more wind and tongues of fire and impressive speakers and mass conversions, it's community. The essential ingredient for mission is community, doing mission together. And today we're going to read Luke's description of that community at the end of Acts chapter 2. And as we do so, we'll look at these three things. First, the importance of community. Second, the ingredients of community. And lastly, implications for us. The importance, the ingredients, and the implications. Let's read in Acts. We're going to read in chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Now remember, Pentecost has just happened. Jews from every nation had gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire. Peter gives a speech. 3,000 people are baptized. And the very next thing that happens is this. Chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So first, let's look at the importance of community. There's been some buzz lately about the so-called swift factor, how Taylor Swift's connection with a certain NFL player has boosted female viewership. One of the reasons this might be the most watched Super Bowl of all time, which is maybe not a surprise when you consider the kinds of things observed in Taylor Swift fans or so-called Swifties. This is a long list, but it includes reciting lyrics to 10-minute versions of songs, knowing about her next album, acronyms, and Easter eggs. And now we're all getting distracted, like, what is her next album? Swifties are regarded by journalists as one of the most devoted fan bases in the world. The fact is, when you see true devotion, you know it. And that's the first thing, maybe even one of the main things, that Luke sees about this community in Acts. They are devoted. That word in the Greek has two implications. It means to persevere, to keep going through failures and obstacles. And it also means to sacrifice, being willing to have it cost you something, be it your convenience, time, money, effort, emotional energy. If someone were to look at your life, what would they say you're devoted to? Like, what are you willing to commit to and sacrifice for? Would spiritual community be on that list? I think Luke is saying it has to be. If we want to be a church on mission, it has to be. And that can be kind of countercultural in our self-focused society. Some of you may be familiar with the late Eugene Peterson, best known perhaps for writing the version of the Bible called The Message. But despite being a well-known author and seminary professor, he spent his whole life pastoring a local church full of ordinary people. In one of his books, Peterson makes an interesting point. He says, what is the opposite of an incarnated Jesus? What is the opposite of an incarnated Jesus? It's a dehumanized one. A dehumanized Jesus is about ideas that we like, music we enjoy, inspiring stories or feelings, but never about actual people. He writes this, Loving a dehumanized Jesus means loving in a way that has nothing to do with anything particular men or women are doing in our community. We become lovers of ideas and feelings, ecstasy and novelty, but certainly not lovers of God who so emphatically revealed himself in human flesh and blood, and certainly not lovers of our brothers and sisters. It's easy in our culture to make our spiritual lives into a primarily individual thing. 
It's easy to love the ideas or feelings or pursuits that suit our own preferences. And we forget that loving an incarnated Jesus is about loving flesh and blood people and what they are doing in the world around us. And I have to confess, I actually really struggle with this. Uh, I am an introverted, task-focused, quasi-perfectionist who values efficiency and control, and relationships are pretty much the opposite of efficient. I was that annoying student who would just do the whole group project myself because it was too irritating to have to actually work with people, defeating the point of the project, of course. But if I look back at my life, all the times I've experienced real healing and change, like the times I've dealt with my worst habits or my deepest misconceptions or fears or struggles, you know, all the times I've actually grown in being able to experience the power and love of God in my life, they haven't been because I went and read a great book or because I listened to an amazing sermon or podcast. They've been through relationships with other believers Relationships that made me have to face those things or gave me space to work through them or spoke some kind of word or advice at a critical time. The fact is we can't experience the reign and restoration of God in our own lives apart from other people. And more than that, we can't bring that reign to the world. You know, we sometimes misunderstand salvation as being reduced only to the individual person, as something God does for us rather than through us for the world. But salvation in Scripture refers not just to the individual, but to the redemption of the whole human life, economic, social, physical, and more. In other words, human sin is not just a matter of private individual sin, but sinful structures and institutions. Idolatry is not just a matter of private idols, but communal and cultural idols, shared practices and customs that we have. Mission is not just a matter of private agendas, but something we're called to in a wider context— All of this is why God chooses community to embody him to the whole world, to participate in and heal and redeem all aspects of life and culture around us. We cannot love an incarnated Jesus in isolation. And we cannot incarnate Jesus to the world in isolation. We can only do so as a community. The very first thing Luke shows us here is the importance of community, of being devoted to doing mission together. Secondly, what are the ingredients of community? In other words, what does doing mission together actually look like? Does it look like a social club, a Bible class, a service group? Like, what does it mean to actually do this? Well, Luke tells us there were four things this community was devoted to. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And the rest of the passage is basically an elaboration of these things. We can think of them in two basic categories, the vertical and the horizontal. So in the vertical or God-oriented dimension, the community was devoted to scripture and to prayer. 
Luke says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which if you think about it is what we have written down today as our New Testament. And we're told they went to the temple, where what we have now as our Old Testament would have been read aloud and taught. So they were committed to learning all of Scripture together. They devoted themselves to prayer. If you look through the book of Acts, you'll see that they prayed when they were waiting for something, when they had to vote in an election, which applies to us this year for sure. They prayed when they healed people, when they were reacting to external pressure, and when they went on trips. They expected supernatural intervention. Luke says their souls were overcome with awe as they saw God's wonders and signs. And Luke ends this passage with a point that God is the one adding to their numbers daily, not them. In other words, they weren't just a social club or a justice movement. They weren't just hanging out because they had the same hobbies or social agendas. They were together because they were following the same missional God. That's what their community was based on. And so they lived a lifestyle that was saturated with scripture and prayer. When we neglect the vertical dimension of community, we too easily become about just our own interests or abilities. We begin to look like any other group around us. We forget that we have a God who can work in supernatural ways. We forget that our faith is about central truths. And so we have to be devoted to scripture and prayer. But secondly, there was also a horizontal or others-oriented dimension in which the community was devoted to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, this word for fellowship in the Greek means more than just hanging out. It literally means sharing in common, lives that are deeply connected with each other. One example of this that Luke gives us is how they would sell what they had to meet the needs of others. And this wasn't a form of socialism or communism, which always used to bother me when I read this passage. It wasn't socialism because it wasn't mandatory. They could still own private property. It was simply an indication of radical voluntary generosity. Luke also says they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which refers to eating meals together because the physical act of breaking bread was what opened an ordinary Jewish meal. This is also likely a reference to communion because communion was often a part of the larger meal in those times. In other words, they shared the most ordinary of home life routines in a way that grounded them on Jesus. And here's the really remarkable thing. Remember, right before this, they went from a group of about 120 people to having 3,000 new believers join their community who came from all over the world and probably hadn't planned to stay this long. So there would have been lots of practical needs like housing and food and such, not to mention a staggering degree of diversity. Yet we know the Holy Spirit was working because of the way they were able to live together despite their differences. And this would definitely have caught the attention of the world around them. You have to remember that back then, religions were not that diverse. Judaism did not welcome Gentiles. The Greek and Roman philosophies did not appeal to the uneducated and the poor. Many religions were primarily for men. 
But here in the Christian community, we have what would have been considered a sociological impossibility. Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and non-Greeks, women and men, free and slave, not only relating with each other, but able to meet each other's needs. See, the vertical dimension is necessary, but without the horizontal dimension, we miss out on the purpose of salvation. We miss out on the mission of God for the world. Here in Acts, the gospel is not spread through an institution or a program or a few celebrity apostles. The vehicle for the gospel was the community itself. The way people see who Jesus is is by how we live and move out together into the world. Today in Acts, Luke has shown us that community is important. It is critical to living missionally. He's shown us the ingredients of community, that it must be both connected to God through scripture and prayer and connected with others through fellowship and communion. So lastly, what are the implications of all this? In other words, how can we incarnate these truths about community into our lives? How can we put real flesh and bones on what we've been talking about? One of the classic books on Christian community is Life Together, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor who gave up a chance to escape Nazi Germany so he could remain with his church community, ultimately being executed in a concentration camp. All to say, he lived what he preached. And here is something he writes. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Community is not an ideal to realize, but a reality to participate in. You know, I think it's easy to come away from Acts 2 feeling like all this is some kind of unattainable ideal. But the fact is, community is never meant to be an ideal we have to attain. It's simply a reality created by God for us to participate in right now. And the way we experience all the things we've seen in Acts 2 is simply by taking that step to participate. Every week this series, we've interviewed someone from the community to share about some aspect of mission. But this week, I want to turn the tables and instead ask each of you a question. What is your next step in doing mission together here at Highway? Think about it. What is your next step in doing mission together? Maybe your next step is to say, I want to connect with one person. You know, maybe you're not sure what this whole community thing is about. Maybe you've been kind of popping in and out without really getting to know anyone. And your next step today can just be to find one person to connect with. Maybe your next step is to join a weekly small group or service team. Or maybe you've had an idea for how to connect people that you can act on. Maybe your next step is to engage more with the wider community around us. Like maybe what you do is add one more name to the neighborhood map we talked about a few weeks back. 
Maybe you get involved with Buena Vista or Hope's Corner or find someone to join you as you come up with a way to engage your community like we've heard about from so many of the folks who've come up to share throughout the series. What is your next step in community? I want to end with a line from a poem that we've read up here before, but it's a good one. It's a poem by St. Teresa of Avila, and the first and last line of it goes like this. Christ has no body but yours. Christ has no body on earth but yours. We follow a God who loves us and loves this world he created so much that he went on mission. He took on human form to rescue us. Jesus died in that body. He rose in that body. And one day he will return in that body to redeem us and redeem creation. Until that day, may we embody him to go into every space and every person to bless, love, bring justice, restore, and declare the reign of God together. For Christ has no body but ours. Amen. Amen. Amen.